Pliny the Elder said, the miraculous rebounding of the voice. The Greeks have a pretty name for it and call it echo. What happened to Western oral history and how do we have today's writing? You're listening to Sift the Podcast, the podcast that sifts through history one devil at a time. I'm Liz Wilshen. Hey, Bill. Hey, Liz. So we're doing a bonus episode right now yeah. for our listeners. Cool. Hey, listeners. Hi. Hello there. It's our first bonus episode. Great. This episode's called Read It and Weep because we um, are doing basically a history of how we got to the dictionary. I have, a, I have weird feelings about the dictionary. I think we're going to have even weirder feelings about the dictionary after this. So before we even got to the dictionary, we had to start off with an alphabet, right? Yeah. And, I mean, if you think about it, we had just an oral history. The alphabet was basically a technology. It was one of the first technologies we had other than things like sticks to dig holes and spears, fire, the wheel. The alphabet was like one of the first big technologies other than those things. And it was pretty much unstoppable once it was created. It spread like a virus. After the alphabet was formed, or even before the alphabet really, we had um, the pictograph, which was the writing of the picture. And a really good example of that would be like the Lisseau cave in France. And so if you go to our website, I'll have a picture of one of the gigantic murals in the Lisseau cave in France, which I'm going to show Bill right now. Werner Herzog has a really great documentary about the Lisseau cave in France. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of it, to be honest with you. One of my professors at U of A did her master's thesis on it, and it's got really limited access, actually. And it has really limited access because it's such a old series of paintings. Mm -hmm. And so what the French government did is they did a full replica of the original cave in the fe or in the woods in France right next to the cave itself for the public to go into. So it's an exact replica um, as a museum for the public to go into because they didn't want um, it to be ruined. Yeah, I mean, you can't really trust people to not ruin shit like that. Well, and also just the, the act of like walking causes degradation to mm -hmm. any historical site. It kicks up dust. You're breathing out carbon dioxide. Um, you're farting methane. <laughs> so all sorts of things causes degradation to any sort of historical landmark. And even Werner Herzog in his documentary, which I'll also post a link to, it's on YouTube, as a matter of fact, oh. in, in full. I'll post a link to that on our website for listeners to check out. Uh, but he was allowed in with all of the archaeologists who discovered the cave in the 90s, I believe, to do this documentary because they wanted to make it clear that they were, one, not hiding the discovery, but two, like they factually could not allow very many people into the cave. So they wanted to have a documentary in the first place yeah. of what the cave looked like so that people understood what a big deal it was that they preserved the original cave in its original form. So that's the pictograph writing the picture. Then there's the ideograph writing the idea. And writing the idea is a really big deal because if you think about it, um, things like 
the word structure. Structure was before the ability to like actually write things down in a physical form. When we had oral histories, structure was only applied as a concept to things like architecture. But once we had the written form, structure was suddenly applied to things like the structure of a poem. Mm. It was applied in, in an abstract sense. Then, once we had the ability to abstract things, we were able to have abstract concepts like liberty and freedom. And then we had all of these new ideas forming <clears throat> because of the rise of discourse. And that's how we were able to form economies, and it's how we were able to form contracts, and eventually democracy. And capitalism. And capitalism. And you it's... You it's capitalism. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, I it's my pronunciation it's it's my dialect where i'm from don't slander our favorite <laughs> world economic system i'm sorry it's my mistake this is a neoliberal podcast oh yeah it's anarcho capitalism i'm sorry anarcho capital use I your just... words capitalism yeah i said it right yeah so, yes, the ideograph is writing the idea, writing in the abstract. And then we have the logograph, which is writing the word. The logograph is very hard to explain, so I'm going to have concrete examples. So there are alphabets which write, represent phonetics, and those have phonograms. Phonograms are basically like Cyrillic, for example. So Cyrillic has um, so a syllabic alphabet. The English language doesn't have a syllabic alphabet. Nope. So like A is, it only is A. And you have to have a series of other letters following A to represent a word. Also, our orthography makes very little sense. Can you expand on that a little bit for yeah. someone who's not a I mean, if you're a, if you're a non-native speaker of English and you're trying to learn English, the English orthography often bears very little resemblance to the way that English is actually pronounced. So like an example I can think of is um, in my French class, there was someone that I met that was from, gosh, the Ivory Coast, the Cote d'Ivoire. And he was having a really hard time learning English. And his example that he gave was he was like, okay, take the word go. That is a word that I learned very early on in my learning of English. And he was like, but then you have the word goat. And he was like, I knew go, I knew at. So I put the words go and at together. Go at. And that's not how you say goat. You don't say go at, you say goat. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. And that's, English is not, English is not a consi consistent case. Um, or consistent pronunciation of anything. Yeah. Yeah, phonograms is a syllabic alphabet a lot of the time. Logographs are representative of words or phrases. So two examples in history are Egyptian hieroglyphics and cuneiform. Cuneiform is a ancient Sumerian tablet written language. It's the earliest written language in history, I believe. And it was written in basically like Mesopotamia and Babylon. Um, and it was a wedge script. And it was, it took a really, really long time to decipher. And it took a long time to decipher it because a lot of Sumerian was used for just counting. A lot of people didn't understand it because like it was just used for counting 
you know, crops or doing taxes. No one really understood why you would use a language for just the most mundane of daily tasks. So an example of cuneiform being representative of words or phrases is like the symbol for water plus I, which is impure. It means foam, which I don't understand why, but it probably has some sort of like cultural significance to Sumerian people. Hmm. And then in Egyptian hieroglyphics, um, so Egyptian hieroglyphics is more um, like animals and there's representations of like deities and stuff in those uh, representations of words and phrases. And so an example is the pintail duck, which it looks like a mallard basically. I, I have a picture and I'll have it on our website, but there's the pintail duck. Ooh. That represents either S or T. And then sometimes the number three. And then if you have it, uh, it looks like a hawk and then some sort of deity. And then it looks like a, maybe, I don't know, like a scythe. So those characters together are basically S and then W. And that means keep or watch. And just like in Arabic script and a lot of other languages, Egyptian hieroglyphics don't have vowels. If you think about it, like when we use text messaging in early text messaging, when you had to do like the T9 and you had to type out like, hey, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. A lot of people would skip out on the vowels because your brain will fill in vowels if you just see all those consonants together. Thinking back to my first cell phone and what that was like texting with that. So North African drumming was used to basically convey messages across like great swaths of space and it was really a lot more effective than like smoke signals because smoke signals are basically just a binary form of communication where it would just be like okay we're gonna agree that this is the question and so you would have the question agreed upon when you left the space and it would either be smoke means yes or and no smoke means no to the question that we've already agreed upon hmm. but then uh, drumming in a lot of these uh, cultural landscapes would be these like extremely complex messages of like, you know, an up drum beat represents this like K consonant um, and maybe like a B. And then a down drum beat could represent, you know, X, Y, Z sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it would also be in the context of like what the rhythm is that you would have these things told the drum message relay <clears throat> would end up being these really really long stories of like it's very well told in james glick's the information which is a book hmm. that i would recommend to any of our listeners where it would be like the frog that lays on the, the frog which lays on the lily pad because the consonant is the only thing that's telling the story because the vowels have been omitted oh okay I see. so that's the alphabet as a technology, right? We have finally the technology of the We're alphabet. There. So, of course, because the alphabet is a technology, there were people who were against it because technology freaks people out. So the millennials are ruining everything. If you think about it, the alphabet came to be basically around like Greek, the heyday of Greek society, right? And 
what was happening during Greek society, but philosophy was being formed. I hate philosophy. I know. And you know what philosophers love is talking about things. They really like that, and I don't. And Plato was basically the one who was like, we can't have this alphabet and writing shit because everyone's going to fucking forget everything that they know because they're going to be able to write it down. Why would they remember anything when that they can just make any sense when they can just write it down and come back to it and look at it later. So I'm going to read a quote from Plato. And he said, if men learn this, it will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written, calling things to remembrance no longer from within themselves, but by means of external marks. What you have discovered is a recipe not for memory, but for reminder. Hmm. I mean, well, I don't know. There's something to be said for like the downfall of oral culture and oral forms of expression not the downfall but like diminishing oral culture is a thing that has happened in certain parts of the world and on some level that's kind of what plato is talking about a little bit but he's being an asshole about it absolutely and i think also anyone who is freaked out about technology increasing is not seeing the potential for what that technology holds. For example, the increase in abstract thought and yeah. and the, also the increase in discourse, which is exactly what philosophy was able to do. Yeah. And also everybody who's complained about things like Twitter destroying the English language or texting or Facebook destroying the English language, that's all nonsense. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. Let's <laughs> Plato's an asshole is what I'm getting at here gigantic gigantic asshole yeah, no if there are any philosophers listening i got no time for play though <laughs> so basically because of writing we were able to have legal documents and it was really hard for people to have consistent tenses because of writing people didn't know like am i doing this presently or will i be doing this in the future or did i already do this because i'm writing it presently but we will be doing the thing And am I holding you to this thing? Like, they were very confused. And so when they would write the legal document, it was kind of like when you texted somebody and text messages became a thing, like in the early 2000s. It was only in the early 2000s? I mean, yeah. Like, I remember um, I got my first cell phone in like 2002 and it was the Nokia brick. Yeah, that was mine too. Yeah. Okay, I guess it was the 2000s. I feel old. And like a lot of it was like, I mean, I would leave voicemails in lieu of text text messages to my parents because it was so fucking expensive, right? I remember I was forbidden from text messaging for quite a while. It wasn't until it was less of a financial burden that texts became a thing. And it was like, when, I don't know, like the language of saying like is it past present or future i texted you i text you i don't know right anyway all right um oh and a lot of like charters like legal documents saying like here's this thing that will be happening and you were ordained to do this they would end with like goodbye (laughs) (laughs) which i think is adorable (laughs) 
You should bring that back. I know. It's so cute. Ciao. Especially since you TTFN. work in like public service. Uh-huh. You should just start signing documents with goodbye. Sincerely, Liz. All right. Moving on to the 17th century, the English language was spoken by barely 5 million people and barely a million were able to write. So enter stage left, John Simpson. He was a school teacher and he became a deacon uh, and then a priest of the Church of England, uh, which was a Protestant church. And that's like during the rise of Protestantism. So like Tudor period-ish. I think. <laughs> Don't take my word on that. And he eventually became the author of the Oxford English Dictionary. I didn't know that. The reason was he wanted to collect words. He never wanted to collect what were quote unquote inkhorn terms. He coined that inkhorn terms. It originates from the word inkpot, which basically means like a bookish word. So think like very academic, a word that someone's not going to use in their kind of like everyday language. He wanted words that were hard usual. Um, so, hard usual. Yeah. So like what I'm interpreting that as is being like a word that you might hear someone say, but that you might be like, mm, I don't necessarily know what that means. I'm going to have to use context clues to interpret it. Hmm. Difficult enough to like need some explanation, even plain. And he compiled 2,500 words. And the spellings were, like, fluid. And the meanings were, too. So, like, he might spell something one way in his introduction. But then in the definition, he might spell it a different way. And even in the, in the introduction, he might have two or three different spellings of the same word. So he wanted to define a word, which he meant as to shoo clearly what the thing is. And that was for, like, objects, not words. And he wanted to interpret, which was to make plain to shew the sense and meaning of a thing. The thing about written culture is that it always made language visible. The dictionary, whether Simpson intended to or not, standardized the English, English language in some way. Yeah, it definitely played some role in it. Spelling, maybe not so much. <laughs> but he did introduce alphabetization. Alphabetization had alphabetization. Alphabet. How do you? Well, I, I, your guess is as good as mine. How do you pronounce that word? Alphabetization. Alphabetization. That's pretty good. I think that's about the best we're gonna get between the two of us. Alphabetization. I feel like I'm saying it wrong. I feel like you've said it different every single time, <laughs> which is ironic because that's basically what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say it a different time every, different way every time. You should. Alphabetization. It's, it's organizing systems with the alphabet. And it was a difficult task to explain because it had never been done before. Also hard to say. It's a very hard word to say. <laughs> I'm going to ask Siri how to say it. <laughs> we could do that right now. <laughs> no, let's not. So, um, it had never been done before. It was always with numbers that people had done it. So it was really, really hard to do. And you can actually find these like medieval explanations where it's like, it starts off with A and then E 
And then there are some letters that are betwixt uh, F and H. And then it ends with Z and la 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 la. And it's so wordy. And so it just, it makes me realize like how fucking thankful I am for the ABC song. Oh yeah. It's such a blessing that good. someone fucking did that. Can you do them backwards? No. Can you? No, Nick can't apparently. That's amazing. I never could. Way to go, Nick. We're going to do a challenge where y- you should sing the ABCs backwards and add us on Twitter. And uh, we'll be really into that. We're just going to listen to people singing to us? Yeah, we're going to just, we'll retweet it. Just add us at Sif the Podcast. <laughs> so anyway, the Oxford English Dictionary, the reason John Simpson did it, primarily was because it was a really, really good tool for teaching. It helped create this new generation of literate people. Remember, only of the 5 million people who were alive and kicking that could speak English, because remember, this is post-plague, so (laughs) two-thirds of the European population have been killed recently. Only a million of those people could write. So then, enter stage right... Uh, from the United States of America is Noah Webster. He had been educated in a one-room schoolhouse, which was a mainly religious schoolhouse, and he described his teachers as, quote, the dregs of humanity. Oh. He obviously thought himself to be a rather important person. Yeah, apparently. He graduated from Yale in 1778 and was unable to find work. Okay, interesting. He's kind of like a millennial. Yeah, I, I was going like. to say, much like many people who graduate from any university today. This guy, Noah Webster reminds me of, of like many ex-boyfriends I've had. He thinks he's so much more important than like every person in the world. He thinks he's more important than people who have educated him, but he can't find a fucking job. You just described most white men. Yeah, pretty much. He is a white man. Oh. He has some mutton chops, too. Like another one of my ex-boyfriends. Uh, anyway, so... I tried mutton chops for a while. How'd that go? Didn't go well. As it turns out, I can't grow facial hair, but I tried. Oh. Do you have any pictures? No. Because I'll post them to the blog. No, no. If you have some pictures. No, no, no. Sifters, if I find a picture of Bill with mutton chops, I'll post it to the blog. Just no, FYI. No, you won't. So he said, Noah Webster said that a liberal arts education, quote, disqualifies a man for business. Okay. <laughs> he sounds like every curmudgeon shitty white guy I've ever fucking talked to. Or you're going to get one of those liberal arts educations I've heard about. <laughs> he sounds like everyone's racist uncle. Oh, man. I can't imagine what a Thanksgiving dinner would be like with Noah fucking Webster. Not good. Uh, they've come a long way though i was just thinking about how good the merriam webster twitter is now oh it's amazing yeah so he studied law under two lawyers one was a future supreme court justice oliver ellsworth that's such a like old man name yeah it's like a good old white guy name he was born an old man uh so webster stopped studying because he fell into a depression but then he eventually passed the bar in 1781 good for him in the 1780s he was a federalist he was idealistic um he edited a federalist paper at the urging of alexander hamilton wow i know like every white guy in the 1780s just knew each other well they were probably what about 
40 people at Yale at the time, so mm, I don't know. they probably all were just getting drunk together. They didn't even have to start a frat. It was a frat. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Yale and Harvard are still just frats. I'm pr- probably. So he was basically this abolitionist dude who became a very self-centered Christian asshole. He was a spelling reformer, which is a very strange type of of mantle to pick up. What is spelling reform? You might be thinking to yourself while sitting alone in your house wearing headphones and petting your cat, or possibly doing your dishes, listener, or possibly doing your work, avoiding it, trying to look busy while your boss walks past your cubicle and glares at you. I'm projecting. Yeah, you're describing a range of personal situations, (laughs) and you're not doing a very good job of covering that they're your experiences. So, what is a spelling reformer, you might be asking yourself, listener, who is possibly doing a litany of other things that I didn't describe? Spelling reform is, according to Noah Webster, wanting consistency in spelling. So he wrote a book called The Blue-Backed Speller, which was his attempt to codify spelling in education. Because remember, John Simpson, in his Oxford English Dictionary, didn't give two flying fucks about spelling. That's such a petty hill to die on honestly right who cares he was the beginning of the there 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 controversy that bastard right so he created the quote-unquote american way of spelling things well i'm not gonna lie i don't want to put a u anywhere near my color or my behavior for that matter no no good i mean i just kind of don't give a fuck you know i don't give a fuck either but I feel like Americans who do put a U in it are just really pretentious. I'm pretty sure that I don't put U's in anything, but I'm pretty sure I use the British way of spelling theater. Oh, yeah. I do that, too. Yeah. I don't I don't remember why I do that. It just looks better. It does me. look better. Theater. But really, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. It's all garbage. Yeah. We're all just trash babies trying to convey trash baby information to each other in a trash baby world. As a linguist, the best thing that I can ever do is just say very plainly that none of this fucking matters and people should do whatever the hell they want. It's very, very honestly fucking true. Do the least amount of harm that you fucking can in this world. There are no rules in language. I don't care what anybody says. So he wanted spelling to be more intuitive and to be as the way words sounded. But also, I'd like to say that he wanted spelling to be as the way words sounded as like a white fucking man living in colonial America. That's the catch. That's the catch. And also, I'd like to say that if you look in William Shakespeare's history of spelling things, he spelled words such as center and color as C-E-N-T-E-R, and color as C-O-L-O-R. So Noah Webster isn't the first person to say, like, we should spell things as this way. Yeah. In this quote-unquote American way. Yeah, but also part of it wasn't the... Isn't it the... I think it's true that at the time, the way that Shakespeare wrote was considered not lower class, but it was not... You know, he was not using, like, quote-unquote kind of high language in his writing. Yeah, he was very accessible. His goal was to appeal to the um, drool seats. I love a good drool seat. Me too. I don't know what that is, but it sounds good. The phrase break a leg comes from 
basically the idea that the lower classes would sit very, very close to the stage and mm. the better the play was, the more likely it was that they would sit with their mouth gaping open, drooling at how amazing the performance was. Oh. They would get drool on the stage and the actor would slip in the drool and break their leg. This sounds like what I do every time I watch The West Wing at home alone <laughs> with no shirt on. I just drool all over myself. That's the most disgusting image I've ever had in well, my listen. fucking head. It's really emotional. I get really into it. So according to Webster... Just, don't just move past that. I'm moving past it. We're moving on. We're talking about Noah Webster and his attempt to control society with language. Fine. What a fucking trash baby he is. <laughs> to Noah Webster, language was a tool to control unruly thoughts. <laughs> okay. Don't jerk it. Spell it right. What? I have no idea. I don't know what unruly thoughts are. <laughs> I don't know. Sinning. That's what it is. So in 1806, he wrote his first dictionary, which was a compendious dictionary. It was written in two volumes and it was $20 and it did not sell well. And according what? to a uh, website, which uh, I'm not really sure is accurate. GeoCities? I, it might be a GeoCities yeah. website. It's like some random translate this quantity of money into another quantity of money using some random arbitrary form of inflation percentage. Oh, you're trying to find out what $20 back then would be like today. Yes. So I, I wanted to know what $20 from today or from then is in, in today money and adjusted for inflation. And that very not reputable website said that it's about 370 US dollars today. That honestly sounds about right to me. It sounds about right to me also. Maybe that GeoCity site is better than we think. Maybe. So then he lowered the price to $15. Still nobody wanted it. I mean, it it was about a $100 price decrease to today's dollars, which I was like $5 back then was $100 now. I mean, I don't know. So when someone says a penny for your thoughts, if you think about it That's a and lot. adjust it for inflation... That's fucking wild. I'm trying to think of who the hell would actually spend money on that book. I have no idea. So in 1807, he began work on an expanded comprehensive dictionary. And in 1808, he became a Calvinist, which Calvinists invented capitalism. So that tells you how fun they are. Um, They're my favorite. He wanted to convert the nation to Calvinism. And he just, I'm going to give you a quote of his to just give you an example of how much he shifted from being an idealistic federalist who was an abolitionist to a fucking garbage can of a man i just had a thought do you think that the people that listen to this podcast actually think that i'm a capitalist i have no idea because i talk about how much i love capitalism a lot i i don't know we're I just gonna he... leave that as like a it's just gonna hang out there it's just gonna hang i'm never gonna admit whether or not i love capitalism yeah definitively all right, here's a quote from Noah Webster. Slavery is a great sin and a general calamity, but it is not our sin. Though it may prove to be a terrible calamity to us in the North, but we cannot legally interfere with the South on this subject. So it's like, eh, it's not in my yard. Yeah, it's not really my problem. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. I mean, it sounds about par for the course at the time, though. Uh, I feel like it's like the equivalent of Blue Lives Matter, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. 
And here's another one. <clears throat> to come north to preach and thus disturb our peace when we can legally do nothing to affect this object is, in my view, highly criminal, and the preachers of abolitionism deserve the penitentiary. So that's uh, the pivot that Noah Webster pivoted. That's a pretty big pivot. I know, right? Fucking full hips. Mm. I wonder what happened mm. in his life that made him so pissed off. That I... that's said to do that about face. I feel like he was just like, uh, you know what? White is uh, white is right. I think. Definitely sounds like that's the direction he wanted to go in. Uh huh. So he became authoritarian and elitist as fuck. So. The Expanded Comprehensive Dictionary was published in 1828 when he was 70 years old. And he died during the revisions for the second edition. And the rights were bought by Miriam, by the Miriam brothers. I was wondering when we would get Miriam. Yeah, so that's how we got Miriam-Webster. He learned, Webster learned 26 languages to evaluate the etymology of words. He traveled across the United States to learn the pronunciation of words. And um, in his second edition, it contained 70,000 words, 12,000 of which were new to any dictionary. And they included words like skunk and squash. Um, culturally conservative federalists denounced the work as radical. They said it was too inclusive in its lexicon and even bordered on vulgar. Too inclusive. Yep. And um, Webster's old foes, the Jeffersonian Republicans, attacked the man, labeling him mad for such an undertaking. He had to mortgage his home while working on the second edition, and he lived in debt for the rest of his life. Yay! Wow. Um, the first fully expanded edition was published by Miriam Webster in 1843 after Webster died. His, I think, son-in-law helped him. Yeah, son-in-law uh, helped, helped the Webster company work on it. And he also died while editing the book. Um, the book was really... Dictionary's got quite a body count. It really does. Um, the book included photographic illustrations of words for the first time. And that was a really big deal because it influenced a lot of, like, scientific dictionaries. Hmm. Um, and so that's when we saw the first scientific dictionaries come into play. And um, input for scientific words were provided by Dr. William Minor, who is a fucking interesting man. He was an American army surgeon during the Civil War, and he loved him some sex workers. He just lived a very, very debaucherous kind of life during the Civil War and in the United States. He just would, like, kind of wander around red light districts. And then he moved to England in 1871 after the Civil War. And he kept spending time kind of wandering around these red light districts, um, picking up sex workers. Uh, I think he was a little bit of a drunk, too. And he contributed, like I said, to... Webster's Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary heard about this and asked him to contribute to their next edition for scientific words and definitions. And then in 1871, after living in England for about a year, he murdered a man. Oh. And he spent the rest of his life in a lunatic asylum. There's a lot going on with these dictionaries. I know. It's a very sordid past. Yeah. 
So Emily Dickinson described the dictionary as her only companion. And one of her biographers said the dictionary was no mere reference book to her. She read it as a priest, his breviary, over and over, page by page, with utter absorption. That sounds terrible. I mean, you gotta read it and weep, baby. So that's it. The history of the dictionary. Thanks for tuning in. Wow. Sift the Podcast is produced by Bill Cotter and me. Nick Granham is our sound engineer. You can find today's sources on our website, siftthepodcast.com. Want to be the first to get new episodes? Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a rating to help us out. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SiftThePodcast. Thanks for listening, and remember, idle ears are the devil's playthings.